At the time that、um, Philippe Ariès published that book in 1963, Centuries of Childhood, it was controversial in the academic world and has been controversial ever since. Did he properly consider enough of the world? Probably not. He was mostly looking at Western Europe. Did he probably did he consider different social classes and situations, different genders? Almost certainly not. He was mostly drawing on people's own written materials, school records, and diaries. So there's the literate class, and so on. Various criticisms about his method and his conclusions. But something that is now taken completely for granted is that children are, in fact, quite different from adults. Have different developmental needs in getting from infancy to adulthood. And that ideas about that have changed over history. Some of the things that have changed are now things we now take again as just as just givens in our time. The discovery that children do have a capacity for reason, and that、um, was followed in some places by an educational philosophy of developing the reason above all else. That that wasn't always in every place. And time considered even worthwhile while children were still、uh, pre-adult. The idea of childhood as a time of innocence has not always been in place, but when it came along, and how it stayed in our bones as our understanding of what we're like throughout our our、um, lifetimes, well, it's led to different conclusions. Some people、uh, conclude that adults should protect and preserve that innocence. Others conclude that children are incapable of moral reasoning. But in any case, most of us think of childhood again as a time before a certain kind of discovery of the ways of the world and ability to know right from wrong, and so on. I think we take for granted now, although we might not have worded it quite the way Arias did, the idea that children are. Here are his words: a source of amusement and relaxation for the adults. I mean, the way that we'll post funny stories of something a child said、um, to our friends on social media, or even the fact that we just share around, share shared photos around, and say, you know, look, look what he's doing right now. So Arias pulls out an example. Uh, what he shows is what he believes was a change in in the culture,、um, showing that underway, in which a grandmother writes to her grown child, "I have been playing with your daughter for an hour now. She is delightful." Right? Nothing different than a grandmother might now write to her grandchild's parents. Love your kid. This is great. And some reacted harshly to this change. None other than Michel de Montaigne. Said, I cannot abide that passion for caressing newborn children, which have neither mental activities nor recognizable bodily shape by which to make themselves lovable. And I have never willingly suffered them to be fed in my presence. I know. I usually like Montaigne. What a grump! He sees nothing delightful. In children's, as he says, frolicking's games and infantile nonsense, and so for him, seeing his peers playing with infants and toddlers, he he saw it as something adults did for our amusement, like monkeys.
You couldn't absolutely just have an enjoyment of an actual relationship with somebody so far from adulthood. I think something else we take for granted nowadays, although we certainly debate about how children's education is to be carried out, we, we don't debate the fact that it is there for their development, not only um, in mind, in reason, but also for, for other capacities that we value as adults. And Arias traces how, as schools modeled themselves on the training of monastics, the discipline in school shifted from something like just a kind of military school harshness to, quote, an instrument of moral and spiritual improvement adopted not only for its efficiency, but also because of its intrinsic moral and ascetic value. I don't think um, schools are such a place of asceticism nowadays, but we definitely have a sense that we're teaching children as we raise them in schools, in churches, in families, in neighborhoods, we're teaching them how to be moral citizens, people who will take on moral decisions and be important um, members of our society as we all consider ourselves to be. And there's lots to say about um, what led to these changes. Um, Arias has a lot of theories and a lot of details, but I'll just say one of the obvious ones is a drop in infant mortality. It's not that people in earlier times when infants died at a very high rate um, didn't love their infants or their very young children. Of course they did. Of course they were grieved when they died. But we can also understand that their attachment to them might have been quite different from our own. Just as our attachment to children is usually different than our attachment to a pet who we know is going to predecease us. And we're likely to feel differently toward a cat or a dog than we do toward a hamster or a guinea pig. Just knowing what kind of history we can hope for and expect together. Now, the ups and downs and the dates and the changes, well, they're obviously very reliant, uh, reliant on, on where you are in the world, what's going on in that society at any particular time, what social class we're talking about, and the religious background. Because we can hear that um, in Laura Engels Wilder's Pause, Pause, Time, which must have been 1830s, 40s, 50s in there. Not very long ago, they had a very different idea of how you get children to learn adult behavior. Their idea was pretty much, they just do it, you know? And if any of us doubt that a kid can sit still for two hours, well, they prove that they can. You might have to threaten them with beating you might have to give them no choice of anything else enjoyable to do, but they're capable if that's what you want. That story came to my mind immediately when I was thinking about how our church is going to be changing. Now, our church is a multi-generational place, and um, we have not up until this point expected anybody of any age to sit Still, no fidgeting, no whispering, eyes on the preacher for two hours. 
That's about to change. No. <laughs> uh, you know, any of you want to volunteer for that, you go for it.、Uh, we, we, we'll just move the chairs around you after the service, and you can sit for another hour.、Um, but you know, this this congregation is multi generational. Obviously, it's also really worth saying that religious communities. Are one of the few places, certainly in the demographic that's typical of this congregation,、um, where in our contemporary society, generations of people who are not related to each other, or people, even people who are related to each other, mix a whole lot. I mean, the way kids spend their days if they go to school, and the vast majority do, is with other people. Their age, no more than a year older or younger than them. That's it's it's considered really out there to be in class with somebody who's maybe three years older or younger. Like that just doesn't happen. And then you know our families again. This particular demographic, our families tend to be small. You know, I grew up hearing about that as the nuclear family as opposed to the extended family. People whose cultures run to lots of brothers and sisters and lots of cousins and peoples of gener different generations living together, they would probably more call it a shrunk family. Their family is normal, and the nuclear family is oddly small. But you know that's what、um, many of us are used to. At most, three, four, five people of at most two generations in one house. And here we come. And we are with people of different generations, and it's a real gift, you know. If you're a grandparent, but your grandchildren live far away, you get some time to just see little ones and the way they are. And for the younger kids, kids of all ages, it's really a boon. Not only because maybe the elder members of their family and all of their beloved cousins and aunts and uncles live far away, and they hardly see them, but also because they have these models of adulthood. Beyond their own family, lots of different ways to grow up and be an adult as models around them that otherwise they would only see from their parents and their teacher. This is a real gift, and it's a rarity. It's also a little complicated. So I say things are changing because our two services are going to become one. That begins on December twenty-fifth. We are expecting. It's quite a small service、uh, then, so actually we'll be in the fireside room one service at ten fifteen, and that will continue thereafter year-round. Now we've never had a service that was adults only. Even the eleven o'clock service that most people don't come to with kids because the kids' program is at nine thirty. Kids are always welcome here, especially newcomers. They might come to this one not realizing that there's a program especially for their kids at nine thirty, and. You know, people just come to different services, but、uh, so we've always had to be.、Um, the adults have always had to know how to be welcoming to、um, to kids. But that is going to be stepped up quite a bit when we're all in one service together. And one of the changes that we're bringing that is coincidental.、Um, it's more about the end of COVID.、Um, you know, end of COVID.、Um, then, then.、Um, Than the、uh, single service, but we are going to resume what we haven't done since before COVID, which is having the kids in the first 15 minutes of most services, and that means 
a story for everybody every time. Yeah. We did, and as we can see, we don't just have Reverend Cat as a great storyteller. We have Jane and many other people who are going to tell stories, which you know most of us like, no matter what age we are. Um, there's also going to be uh, there are going to be a couple other changes in our in our service. Um, back to having a short list of hymns for the opening hymn, so that the kids can get to know uh, those ten or so hymns over the course of the year. Then we'll change it up each year. Um, even though I spoke just a couple months ago about why we have the announcements at the very beginning, I think I'm going to move them to being after the kids leave for their Sunday school program. Because when you're only 15 minutes in the service, having five of them be announcements is, oh, I mean, really. So, um, so that will be a little bit different. And we're giving a lot, oh, and we're probably going to have a, what Reverend Kat keeps calling a playground, but I tell her I, she cannot utter those words without my giggling. <laughs> but basically, a, a space on the floor, this side or that, um, for kids to go play quietly. If they do better with that, with something quiet to play with or, or read, than um, than sitting in the in the space with their parents until they go. It also means things are going to be a little bit more chaotic, a little bit more noisy. Because I got to tell you, we don't believe anymore that kids should be seen and not heard. We don't believe, we have not found through our own experience, that the best way to raise children into the kind of adults we hope them to be, hope, hope they will become, is for them to act just like adults from a very early age. They have different developmental needs. And we want them to learn about adult worship. We want them to learn something about what it's like to be in this community full of adults, as well as in intergenerational services specifically built to be, you know, interesting to people of all ages. And in addition to something they'll have once a month um, in lieu of being in this service, which is children's chapel, especially made for kids. We want them to learn to grow up into the kinds of adults we're all trying to be. And that's not, a, that's not a simple matter. It's not just for parents. It's not just for Sunday school teachers or our religious educators. It's something that we all do, as the expression goes. It takes a village to raise a child. That's not because everybody teaches RE, religious education. It's because children are watching us. And children learn from the expectations that we hold of them. Do you have to sit still and just read your catechism all day long? Or do you go out and play? And they learn from the way that the adults treat one another and treat them. What is expected of them as they grow up? We've also been talking about some very concrete ways that we can um, scaffold their growing up into, into being um, adults in this community and the wider community. That's, a, that's one of my favorite metaphors from today's understanding of how children learn. Today's understanding of the fact that childhood is different and kids need to learn how to be grown-ups, just like people have always known children need to learn a trade. And that it's similar. 
If it needs explaining, you explain something to a child. You tell them some of the ways that we do things, which might be it's fourth Sunday brunch, kids, when you take a waffle, take one, come back for more if you're still hungry. That way we make sure everybody has one, right? That's something that we want adults to do. It's something we want kids to learn to do. And then, of course, there's lots of things, actual skills that kids need to learn. And we scaffold them by saying, you know, if you get stuck after I've explained to you how to make a sled, something kids apparently knew how to do quite easily, young children in the 1840s or 50s. We show you how, and then we say, I'm here. If you get stuck, you're not sure what to do next. That's the scaffold. And once they show, you know what? They're doing it without consulting us a lot. You can take down the scaffold. They've got it. We're going to have a lot more opportunities to do that in our services. So that a very young child, you know, in in parents' arms, can hold on to the handle here if their parent wipes the chalice and just feel a part of things. And when they're a little older and they have learned how to handle fire, they could actually light it. They could ring the bell. They could get to the age and ability where they could do a reading in the service or play an instrument until finally they have the confidence and the ability to share something that they've written in the service and be a worship associate as our teenagers often are or um or help lead the service as as one of the um members of the coming of age group or the senior high youth group and one of the things that we adults do is we tolerate a little less expertise. They're not quite ready to have the scaffold down. They're just learning. Because we see that this is how they grow into being full members of an adult community right here. And not only that, they learn to be members of the wider community, like that Actera program. Kids are so passionate about the environment, about climate change. They're looking at us and saying, what are you leaving us? We need a better world. What better ambassadors to the adult world than teenagers? And they just need some training. How do I speak at a public meeting? How do I speak to adults in a way that they will listen and have to act on what I have, what I have to say? What a fabulous kind of training to create the next generation of adults, because that's what we're doing here. Here at church, those little, little ones, oh, they make noise in the service. They ask questions at the top of their lungs. And we'll teach them. Ask me quietly, you say to your kids. Speak to me quietly. And we help the adults who start to have hearing problems who can't handle a little bit of talk around them. I get it. We do something about that by improving our assistive listening devices and making sure everybody knows that they're here and can be used. Because if we want kids to learn this stuff, it's going to be a little bit different around here. That's a really exciting thing to see. Same at coffee hour. And same in all the other ways. When the kids are learning this stuff, they're not just growing up into possible leaders of the service. We've been scaffolding kids 
into adulthood in this congregation for a long time. We've had kids who are on the board of trustees. On the, in fact, there's always a teenager on the board of trustees at this point. When, when one leaves, as they usually have to do within a year or two, because off they go, we make sure that there's another one in place. We have kids on the committee on ministry. They've been on the finance committee, and as I said, among worship associates, because it's not long until the future of our faith is here. That future that's this big and noisy is going to be the people leading this congregation. And if we don't welcome those children and teach them how to be grown-ups in this space, then there won't be much of a congregation here in 20 years or 50 years or 100 years. So there's lots of ways we can make that happen. All of us, this village. Obviously, there's lots of ways to help actually reach out, mentor, teach kids in, in the congregation. And some people do teach Sunday school, lead a program. But then there's lots of other ways. If that's, if that's not uh, your speed, maybe you're great with kids, but um, as, as some parents, um, really marvelous parents, know they're not good with them in packs. Yeah, that's a direct quote. Um, if that's not your thing, you know, maybe you don't do classroom management, but you come in and you're a guest in the classroom one day to talk about what you do for a living or an interesting place you've traveled or grew up. Or you come and speak to the OWL panel, as I'll be able to do this afternoon, be on the OWL panel and, and answer questions, um, along with other adults in our community today. And um, lots of ways that you can model what does it mean to be an adult in our community to younger people. And, um, you know, if you're asked to be a mentor by Reverend Cat for the coming of agers, think about, oh, I could spend a few hours with a teenager um, in, the, in this spring. Just, um, you know, get together with them now and then just to talk with them and answer questions and ask them about their life because something we recognize in our theories of childhood right now is that it really helps you grow up into adulthood if you've got adults around who are attentive and caring, not because they're related to you, just because they're part of the community. That's something you can do. Here in, the here in the congregation, of course, in this time that has always been multi-generational, but that is going to be more so, when kids are in the first 15 minutes of most services. You can just be tolerant, be easygoing, be understanding when a parent is trying to fuss, try to quiet a fussy child. Understand nobody wants their child to be fussy. Give them an understanding smile instead of a, you know, everybody knows the kid's fussy, it's not fun. Just to make some room for that. And here's something we can all be doing. We can think right now about who are the adults who made us feel particularly unwelcome or welcome 
in a multi-generational community when we were young. Maybe you had a community like this. I know I did. And I remember that there were adults in my synagogue, like this one, a real mix of people of different ages, different generations who were not related to each other. There were people who looked at me like, as a teenager, like I was coming up into adulthood. They said, Amy, you're really good with the little kids. They like you. You should think, you should think about teaching Sunday school soon. And what that said to me about how I was ready to take my place as an adult in that community. And how other adults also tried to teach me about how we did things in our community by grabbing me by the arm and saying, stop running. Don't you know you're in a synagogue? Which you know is true, you shouldn't run in the synagogue. But they didn't know a gentle way to tell me that. To talk to me as they'd talk to another adult who didn't quite know yet how we do things around here. You might think about who those people were for you and think about who were the adults not in your family who made you feel like you belonged there, like it was your place. Because I can tell you, one of those adults I just described made me feel like I wanted to grow up and stay there, and another one made me feel like not so much. Not that we're going to get it right all the time. We lose our patience. Parents, too. And parents are most of all the ones in need of uh, people you know, with kids at home right now are most of all the ones in need of a little space without children in it. And we have those. They're important. You know, you can be in a men's group or, or the young adult group, youth group or the book, the book club or, or, and so on if you want to be in a, in a room with just adults and have the kind of conversation. But coffee hour and services, they're going to be our place to practice. Practice whether we say, sit still and learn to be a grown-up, or places where we all adjust to, what are the developmental needs of everybody here? So even if you have no interaction with children, you're not teaching Sunday school, you're not being a mentor, no interaction beyond seeing them here in the service and out on the patio afterwards, Remember your childhood and be aware of how important you are in the life of these children, in the life of our future community. Your smile, your attitude of being glad to be in a community with them, that will tell them this is the place where they want to be a grown-up. It's a powerful thing, and I'm really excited about our Christmas present to ourselves of doing that starting on the 25th.